Well, good morning, Athens First United Methodist Church once again. It is good to see you on this chilly third Sunday of the new year. I am so grateful that you were willing to get bundled up and to come and to be in worship with us this morning. Now, where I'm from in Connecticut, uh, this kind of weather, this is what we call early spring. But, but I know here in the South, we call this like braving the elements just to come to worship. So the fact that you are here this morning, we are so grateful. The fact that all of our, our new uh, families and church members that have come to unite with us in membership, we are especially grateful. Um, I know that uh, as a father and as somebody who uh, has raised three children, over the years. One of the things that does tend to happen is um, anytime we're doing something special, um, it never fails that one of my kids needs me to do something exactly at the moment when we are supposed to be somewhere. So I do want to mention that Leo, where's Leo? Leo? Leo had to step out the moment we were welcoming him into membership this morning. So I don't want him to miss all the love that we showered upon our folks. So can we just show him some love this morning? Thank you, Leo. That, that's called being a good dad, and so we really appreciate that. Now, uh, this morning, we are in week three of our new sermon series. It's called This Is Us, and what we've been doing over these six weeks together is we have been looking at some of the most important, fundamental, distinctive features of the Christian faith, but not just as Christians. We've been looking at them through the lens of what does it mean for us as Christians Christians from a Wesleyan tradition of faith, meaning what, what, what do we believe as, as people who belong to the United Methodist Church, and, and what are some of those things that we believe about God and faith and grace and forgiveness? What is it that makes it unique when it comes to how we understand those things? Uh, we have been looking at a variety of, of different facets of our theological perspective over the past couple of weeks. And um, part of the reason why is because we have a lot of folks that weren't necessarily born into the Wesleyan tradition of faith. Um, in fact, I've had a lot of people who have shared with me that, that uh, they were, grew up Catholic and one grew up Baptist and they decided that the Methodist Church was the best possible compromise so they joined the church but did they ever go to confirmation no so they never really got to understand or got to go through classes that helped them understand some of these things well last week I shared with you the fact that I grew up not United Methodist I grew up Presbyterian and so I actually had somebody that came up to me earlier this week and she just she was effusive uh, with her thanks for the, the walking through some of the differences. And in fact, she said the whole sermon last week, I was just nodding my head. I couldn't believe your experience mirrored mine. There was so much about your experience in the Presbyterian church and then coming to the Methodist church that was just similar. And so she said, never in my life have I wanted to just get up and shout amen during a sermon. But she said, I have too much Presbyterian still left in me to actually do that because we would rather die than ever stand up and shout amen. But I'm grateful that there are experiences in this room who, from people like me who have said, this isn't necessarily my background. So what is it that we believe? 
We started week one looking at baptism. Last week, we looked at one of the first understandings of John Wesley's perspective on grace. This morning, we're going to look at the second way that he looked at uh, grace. Last week, we looked at provenient grace. This morning, we look at something called justifying grace. What does that even mean? Well, to help us with that, I want us to look at the same passage of Scripture that we looked at last week, Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 4, where Paul gives us a lot of good information about his perspective on grace. Paul says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, but it is a gift of God, not by work so that anyone can boast, for we are all God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for all of us to do. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. O gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts gathered here together be holy and acceptable in thy sight. Thou who art our rock and our redeemer, now and forever. Amen. Do you remember your first sin? I know that's a pretty heavy question to start the sermon out with this morning, and some of you are thinking, I can't even remember what I had for breakfast, never mind the first sin I ever committed. But I also know that there are some people in the room this morning who know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you remember very vividly that first pang of guilt that you felt when you did that thing that you knew that you weren't supposed to do. I know for me, the very first time I did something that I was absolutely sure that I was not supposed to do was at vacation Bible school at the church where I grew up when I was eight years old. Now, to be honest with you, I don't remember much about VBS that year. I don't remember the theme. I don't remember the lessons. I don't remember much of what we learned. But what I do remember with incredible accuracy is the VBS carnival that we had at the end of the week on Friday night to celebrate that VBS was over. Because let me tell you something, this carnival was epic. I mean, it had everything you could ever want in a carnival. It had face uh, painting booths and, and cotton candy machines. There was popcorn and bounce houses. There were even carnival games that you could play and win actual prizes. So to say that me and my friends were excited about going to the carnival would be an incredible understatement. We couldn't wait for Friday night and to enjoy all of these wonderful things. Well, the way that you got to enjoy these wonderful things at VBS that year was by earning what they called VBS carnival tickets. And every day, if the teacher asked you to recite the daily memory verse, or if the teacher asked a question and you got it right, you would receive one of these tickets, and every ticket you could use to buy some popcorn or play one of the games. And so that's how you participated in the weekly, or at the end of the week, carnival. 
Well, I didn't have a lot of tickets by the end of the week. I'll just be honest with you. I don't know if it was a behavioral thing. I don't know if I just didn't get enough questions right. But I can remember looking at the three or four tickets that I had somehow earned and thinking, this is not going to be that great. But nevertheless, I was, I was still excited, and I was sure, I was sure that it was going to be fun anyways. Well, that Friday, just after lunch, I remember my mother said to me, Jeremy, I'm going to go to the church, and I'm going to help uh, with some of the preparations for the carnival tonight, so why don't you come with me, because I'm sure we can use all the help we get. You would be a great source of help for us. I said, sure, I'd be happy to. So we went. And I remember going in the church, and one of the first things that happened is the director of VBS, Miss Sandy, came up to me, and she said, Ah, oh, Jeremy, you're here. Great. Will you do me a favor? Sure. Will you bring this to my office and put it on my desk? We're not going to need these again until next year. And she handed me a giant roll of VBS carnival tickets. I said I'd be glad to. Now, honestly, I, I hadn't thought of anything yet, of doing anything nefarious at this point. But within a couple of steps down that hallway, I will tell you that I looked down, and I had a not-so-holy realization. Because I immediately thought, oh my goodness, Miss Sandy has just given me the keys to the VBS Carnival Kingdom. And there isn't anybody around to see if I take any. So I went into the office, and I will tell you that the overwhelming, there was an overwhelming temptation to just take a couple, which I did, which was followed by a couple more, which was followed by a couple <clears throat> dozen more. <laughs> and by the time my pockets were full, I said, you know what, let's not be greedy here. And so I put them on her desk, and I left her office. And I guarantee you, if you took a picture of me walking out of that office, I looked like the cat that ate the canary. You know, I, I, I just couldn't believe that I was getting away with this. I felt so alive. That is until a few moments later when I had another realization, which was, oh my goodness, I just stole these. All the way home, that's the only thing I could think about. Oh my gosh, I, I just stole these. And I was so wracked with guilt. Because for one of the first times in my life, I realized that I had done something that I was not supposed to do. In other words, I realized that I had committed a sin. Now, there are a lot of ways that you and I could define the word sin this morning. But one of the images that I've always found helpful to me when trying to understand what exactly sin is, uh, is that of a, a, a target uh, with a bullseye in the middle. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the kind you shoot arrows at? The reason why that's a helpful image is because in the New Testament, one of the most common words that is translated as sin is the word hamartia. And hemartia was actually a term that archers would use that meant to miss the mark. And so, if you think about it, that really is what sin ultimately is, right? Because if at the center of this target, if, if in the bullseye is doing what God wants us to do, living a holy life, living a life of righteousness, then to sin is to miss that mark. It's to fail to hit the 
target of, of living a life that is ultimately honoring to God. And so when I looked at my pockets full of these, these carnival tickets, I realized that I had, in fact, committed a sin. And so the question is, like, when, when you realize that, when you become aware of the shame that you feel from having sinned, what do you do with that? What do you do with the guilt of sin? Well, I will tell you that there are literally libraries worth of books that have been written on this subject, and there is no shortage of theological perspectives on things like grace and repentance and forgiveness and atonement. I mean, there's a lot of things out there in a lot of different directions we could go in this morning. But I feel like before we get into all of that, maybe the best thing we could do is to consider how Jesus dealt with that subject. Because if you... If you've ever looked in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, one of the things you'll find there is this wonderful story that illustrates two different approaches to sin. One is how a bunch of religious leaders would have dealt with it, and the other is how Jesus decided to deal with it. Now, in this story, if you've ever read it before, uh, you know that, that, that it all took place very early in the morning while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. When all of a sudden, a group of religious leaders, they were Pharisees and teachers of law, law, they show up with this woman in tow, and they basically say to Jesus that this woman has committed a very egregious sin. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, and according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned to death. So what say you? Now, it is important to note at the beginning of this story that when these religious leaders brought this woman before Jesus and they made this pretty serious accusation, what they were looking for was not justice. Because if they had been looking for justice, there were other things that they should have brought with them, like, for instance, witnesses, or the guy who was also a part of committing this sinful act. But the Gospel of John lets us know that they were not there in order to find justice. No, what they wanted to do was to trap Jesus into saying something incriminating so that they could get rid of him. So basically what they say to Jesus is, so what do you think? How should we deal with this woman's sin? Now, if it had been up to them, I'm pretty sure this woman would have been a goner. Because you get the sense, just from reading John's description, that they were ready. They had stones in hand. They were just waiting for the green light. They were ready to put this woman to death. And that's because that's what she deserved. They believed that there were certain sins that were beyond redemption. And so they figured that they had ultimately trapped Jesus in a really tricky question by asking him, so how would you deal with this? But I do believe that it's in Jesus' response that we see the beauty and the brilliance of Jesus come shining through. Because if you remember that story, you know that Jesus didn't actually respond to them. John says that that when they started asking Jesus those questions, the first thing he did is he knelt down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. 
Now, in the first century, this would have been a sign of disengagement. This is a way that he would have been saying to them, I am not willing to engage you in conversation about this. It's the same thing that whenever my kids are getting ready to go to school and they're about to leave the house and it's 17 degrees outside and one of my kids says, do I have to wear a winter coat today? Do you think I'm even going to respond to that question? No, I give them the famous dad death stare, which automatically says to them, I'm not even going to dignify that question with an answer because you already know the answer. Well, that's essentially what, what Jesus is doing in this moment. He bends down and he writes on the ground as if to say, we're not having this conversation. But John says that the teachers of the law and the religious leaders, they just kept going after him. They kept asking him questions. So finally, Jesus stands up and he responds to them with just one sentence. That's it. One thing. You know what he said? He said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. In other words, you want to hold this woman accountable for her sin? Fine. That's fine. Let's just start with you first. Are any of you without sin? Have any of you not been guilty of missing the mark? Of course, the answer is no. I mean, none of the religious leaders actually say that out loud, but that's what is implied when John says that they all, one by one, started walking away. And the reason why is because there isn't anyone, save for Jesus, that has ever led a life that is free of sin. All of us have been guilty in some way, shape, or form of missing the mark of holiness a thousand times over because that's what it means to be human. Paul said it best in Romans chapter 3, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. How? By sinning. And so really the question isn't, you know, have we ever sinned? The real question is, what do we do with the guilt of that sin when we realize what we've done? That's why I absolutely love Jesus' response to the woman after this. Because John says that slowly but surely all the people started leaving, dropping their stones, leaving. Finally, it's just Jesus and it's her and he looks at her and you know what he says? He says, where did everybody go? Is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. To which Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Now, there are two things about that response from Jesus that I think are absolutely brilliant. Number one, it is a response that is teeming with grace. Because notice that Jesus doesn't say to her, now listen, you want forgiveness? Well, you better earn it, okay? It's going to start with a whole lot more prayer time. You need to start going to church. You need to start reading your Bible more, and then you can come back and we'll figure out what this forgiveness stuff looks like. Uh, uh, uh. What does Jesus say? Then neither do I condemn you. Which is another way of saying, you're forgiven. 
But the second thing that Jesus says is just as brilliant because the next sentence that Jesus utters to her is, go and leave your life of sin, which tells me that Jesus wasn't only interested in redeeming this woman's past, he was interested in rewriting her future. Now, does anybody want to guess what we call that in the United Methodist Church? We call that justifying grace. Because as I mentioned last week, John Wesley had three ways of understanding grace. The first was prevenient grace, which is the grace of God that is present in our lives before we ever know it. The second, though, is justifying grace. And that is the grace that is at work when God offers us his forgiveness, because John Wesley once said, justification is just another word for pardon, and that is exactly what's happening when God forgives us. He is pardoning us of our sins. Whatever we've done, all the ways that we've missed the mark, what God is saying is, your ledger is being wiped clean. You are pardoned. It's like a judge rendering a verdict on your life, and he says, you are not guilty. That is justifying grace. But of course, what the Apostle Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand about that grace, in fact, one of the things that he wants them to know more than anything else is, folks, this grace, this forgiveness, it's a gift from God. It isn't because of anything you've done. You didn't earn it, deserve it, merit it. You didn't do something really impressive where God said, well, I guess I got to forgive him. That was really impressive. No. Paul says, it is a gift of God. But here's the thing about a gift. Not only does a gift have to be offered, it also has to be received. Which means that God is not going to force his forgiveness and grace on any of us. He's not going to say to us, I'm going to forgive you whether you like it or not. No, grace always has to be received. And do you know how we receive the gift of grace? Paul says it's by faith. He says, for you have been saved by grace. How? Through faith. Meaning that when we receive this act of forgiveness from God, it's not like there's some kind of contract that comes with it. He doesn't send us a PDF of all the stipulations. All right, now here's how forgiveness works, and here's your evidence. If you ever need it, if somebody says you're sinful, you can tell them, no, look at this, I'm forgiven. There's none of that. You know how you know that you've been forgiven? He said you've got to take it by faith, because that's what God's Word says it's a promise from God to us, and the only thing you've got to do is trust it. You take it on faith. You know, that's what John Wesley did. John Wesley was a minister and a missionary and a preacher for years before he ever experienced the grace of God, because one night, May 24th, 1738, he's 35 years old at this point. And he's walking down the street. He sees a meeting of people who are, are studying the Bible. They're about to launch into a study on the letter to the Romans. He comes in, and he listens not to 
Paul's letter to the Romans. He listens to Martin Luther's preface to the Romans where Martin Luther is describing how forgiveness works and how a person's heart is changed at the moment that God forgives him. And this is what John Wesley said. In that moment, my heart was strangely warmed. In that moment, he said, I knew that I knew that I knew that my sins had been taken away from me. He said, I knew that Jesus died for me. In other words, he heard Jesus say once and for all, then neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. Now how do we leave our life of sin? Well, we're going to get into that next week because there's all kinds of layers to it. But this morning, so as to not leave you hanging from my opening story, I'll tell you how I left my life of sin when I was eight years old. Because I got home and I was racked with guilt. I couldn't believe what I had done. My pockets are full of these tickets that I no longer wanted to use. So I decided I need to come clean. So that night, I arrive at the carnival and I make a beeline for Miss Sandy. And it was not easy, but I knew I needed to say something. So I very sheepishly told her what I had done. And then I waited for her response. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know how she was going to respond to this because I didn't know if she was going to, like, kick me out of the carnival. I didn't know if she was going to put me in VBS jail or something. <laughs> but, but instead, Miss Sandy responded with Jesus-like grace because she looked me in the eye and she said, Jeremy, I want you to know I'm proud of you. I know this wasn't easy, and this took a lot of courage for you to come and admit so here's what we're going to do. I want you to do two things. Number one, I want you to promise God that with God's help, you'll never do something like this again. But the second thing I want you to do is I want you to take all these tickets, and she handed them back to me, and she said, I want you to go around the entire carnival tonight, and anytime you see a kid without a ticket in need, you give them one of your tickets. In other words, she said, why don't you take this and be a blessing to someone? I don't remember much about what I learned at VBS that year, but I can tell you I learned a lot about grace. I learned that with God's grace, it's not interested only in redeeming our past, it's also interested in rewriting our future. It's interested in helping us live into the promise of Psalm 103, which says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us, in other words. If any of us marched up to God this morning and asked God the question, do you remember my first sin? Do you know what God would say to you? Nope. Amen.